A content warning for our listeners. This episode contains discussion of molestation, substance abuse, and pornography. Welcome to Call Me Maker, your unofficial True Blood Rewatch podcast. We're your hosts, Simone Less and Michelle Martinelli, helping you cross that line one episode at a time, spoiler free. Today, we'll be discussing Season 1, Episode 7, Burning House of Love, written by Chris Offutt and directed by Marco Siega. I feel so baby-faced today. You look like baby. I, I am baby today. Why are you baby today? I don't like getting ready twice in one day. I sort of refuse to do it. Oh, same. And I know we're going to a Christmas party tonight. Oh my God, you're stuck. <laughs> um. <laughs> fucking kill you i know we're going to a party tonight so i don't want to get ready twice in the same day i'm gonna shower and get ready later so i am baby face no makeup and self-conscious about the fact that we record ourselves on camera i felt the same way preparing for you to come over and i was like i'm gonna do my best (laughs) we're just doing our best that is the theme this week and every week for the past few weeks i always like to pretend that like i'm going through a hard time and it's like just a couple months period or like just a couple weeks period but like i'm always just doing my best you know yeah (laughs) and that doesn't mean that it's like it's not gonna get better than this We got to roll through the punches. Healing's non-linear. <laughs> Whoa. Healing's non-linear is a really good theme oh. for this entire episode, actually, for multiple characters. Yeah. I was sitting with this one and I felt like you because I was wondering to myself, is this my favorite? <gasps> In a way, it's not my favorite. So actually, I'm really glad that it resonates differently for you because it really brings up so many things and handles them well across the board. I I would say I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. With a lot of dramatic flair as well as heart and compassion. I love that. Well, I want to hear more of your thoughts on that, obviously. But first, (laughs) I want to hear, did you meet a vampire this week? I didn't meet one this week. I didn't meet a vampire, but I did think about a celebrity I consider a vampire. Go with me on this. Patrick Wilson. I don't think I know who that is off the top of my head. All right. I always feel embarrassed when you make a reference. I don't know. That's okay. I'm ignorant. <laughs> you're not. You're not ignorant. Don't okay, talk about my Patrick butt. Wilson. He played Raul in Phantom so many moons ago. Okay. Yeah. I also- remember being enamored by him, but I couldn't tell you what he looks like or what he's done since. I, well, I can tell you, he looks virtually the same as he did in Phantom. And you know why? Because he stays in his lane. He is apparently <laughs> very kind. He's been working. He's been doing more like horror movies. He's been in like The Conjuring and Insidious, which I also don't like horror, but I don't really either, which is so funny that we do this podcast about this show and neither of us are huge horror fans. I actually dislike horror movies. (laughs) I don't dislike them. You know what it is, is I don't like slasher movies. Yeah. Like I really love, like I recently rewatched the original Exorcist and Mm. that like, older style of horror that's more so about building suspense and then the last like 30 minutes are insane I love that shit I see that I like that I don't love it Mm. I'm never I'll I'll watch it if someone wants to but I'm never like seeking that thrill out gotcha gotcha yeah but yeah Patrick Wilson 
reportedly wonderful to work with has run multiple marathons. So you view him as a vampire who's just like superhuman and uses his existence for good to mainstream effectively? Yeah. (laughs) I love that. Did I tell you I followed Fabrizio after our last episode when you were talking about that he was your vampire? You didn't tell me you followed him. I know I'd sent you some of his, his... His content is insane. And callers, I don't think Simone really clarified that he is older. He is a silver fox. Yes. I need you to go follow this man because it is worth it. Everything he posts is a reel of him on Instagram walking around in like a full rabbit coat being like saying some weird idiom of like life is a bowl of cherries suck on my pits or like (laughs) very good. If that wasn't when he did, that's excellent. I just improv that. I don't know. Yes. And mama. (laughs) no, and what's funny is when I was talking about him on the pod, I said that he had like 60K followers. He's got like a buck 20 now. Like he's exploding. <laughs> is it because of us? <laughs> is it, everyone's listening to us. Yeah, he's callers. Give him a follow. Fabrizio, I don't know his last name. Really quality content though. I don't know his last name either. We'll put it in the show notes. We'll put his handle in there. <laughs> Can't wait for him to come in this weekend and be like, I heard you talking about me on the podcast. Can I get a bowl of chili? <laughs> I, love quesadilla. I love it. Michelle, did you meet a vampire this week? You know, when we came up with the idea for this segment, I really thought vampires were all around us and that in our wonderful lives, I was going to encounter many. And I really have not. And I realized the gag is this is meta. I am kind of a vampire in my workspace. <laughs> Smile. <laughs> Smile. <laughs> Never did I think that Michelle proposing, let's do this vampire segment at the top of the show. Would she then go, I'm the vampire this week? Well, no, because, okay, so we're doing a lot of like private corporate Christmas parties in my place of work at the Haunted Hotel right now, because obviously we have various programming and shows going on all the time, but we also have private event spaces. Mm -hmm. So part of my job is to escort these people who are here for their insurance company's Christmas party to where the private event space is, because the building itself is a maze and very intentionally you can't find your way in it. Mm -hmm. So I have to go gather these people from where they've arrived and bring them to their room and do that over and over and over again all night long. To be fair, it is a very disorienting space. And so many of these people are very scared when they first encounter me because I'm like the intermediary between the outside world and going through this very strange environment to where their party is going to be. And so I'm giving them instructions of like, here's where you put your coat. Here's where you put your bag. Here's where the bathroom is. But follow me into this dark corner. Corridor. You're only describing being a service industry person <laughs> thus far, but you know, spooky context. But, but in continue. Su- such a dark, mysterious environment, it is different. It's not like I'm just guiding you into a restaurant. It is that vibe, but I'm guiding you through like a room with no lights or a maze that is completely in darkness. And you're leaning into like spooky, like Well, I have to because part of my job also is you're not supposed to reveal anything about the building and how it works because if they should ever come there to see a show that will tarnish their experience of the show. Mm -hmm. Part of it is being disoriented and not knowing where you are in space. So when I'm walking people through through all the time they will be like where are we going what floor are we on and I am literally not allowed to answer these questions directly so I give them vague creepy answers so the do you think that this is a skill set you already had and that 
you were right for this job or that this job has led you to find within yourself that you didn't have before and now you have? What do you think? I think my skill set before was to yes and. And mm-hmm. I think this job has made me lean into a much more haunted mansion side of that than okay. I originally had. Okay. Because people will ask me, like, where are we going? And I'm like, to the party. And then, like, just shit that's like infuriatingly vague. But I had so many people last night as I was working one of these events say, like, you know what? I trust you. Or like, you know what? I trust you implicitly. This is fine. Eventually they decide to surrender to me. And in my head, I'm always thinking, you shouldn't. Like I have, I also have no idea what I'm doing. And sometimes I get lost in this building. I have sometimes, unfortunately, do lose my way and get disoriented. Callers, I don't know if we've touched on this yet, but Michelle has an extraordinarily poor sense of direction. (laughs) Really bad. Don't know up from down. I love her with my whole heart. She could not find her way out of a paper bag. (laughs) Couldn't. And these people are saying, I trust you to lead me. They're looking at my cabbage patch kid face and saying, I trust you implicitly. And I'm like, you really shouldn't. But they do. And I've realized that if I were a vampire, I would be very successful, I think. I feel like that's some vampires in cinema and literature, the the like very angelic, sweet looking person ends up being this like vicious creature. So, okay. Yeah, that me. That's you. Okay. I'll allow for it. Thank you. I'm just thinking about how infuriated I would be as a patron of your spooky. Some of them do get very upset by it. Some of them like to play along with me and have fun. Like they'll guess my name and I'll intentionally give them wrong names or like I'll make them guess. Are you allowed to disclose your name? Yes, I'm allowed to disclose my name. Uh, I don't know. Now it's just part of the game. Sure. (laughs) I was Kelly for a lot of last night. (laughs) Your body language. You're so excited about this. I'm excited. She's just shimmying. Kelly loves a shimmy. (laughs) Wow. I did meet a vampire this week. Kelly. (laughs) So we start with this cold open. Which is just... Porn. porn. Just <laughs> NC-17 rated porn. Yeah. And you know, I've had, especially since we started this podcast, so many people tell me about their first time watching True Blood. And a number of people have said I did so with my parents. And I'm like, why? Yeah, why? <laughs> For this exact reason. Like, I would never, ever feel comfortable consuming this with a parent. The end of the last episode and the beginning of this one, and then all around with Jason and everything... I'm glad I watched this alone. Are you I did kidding? too. No, absolutely not. I don't want to know. What's going on in their homes? <laughs> What's happening in their houses? Yeah. Yeah. Soft lighting. Beautiful. Looks orgasmic. I said what I said last week. Yeah, we know. I left it in there. I let you live in your glory. Thank you. I want to get slurp slurp. <laughs> uh, but then... My favorite part, more so than just the pornography in this first moment, is then after the credits, when we're in the jacuzzi. The biggest bathtub you've ever seen in your life. Yeah, Yeah. that's great. I love that the remodeling efforts have gone into this project. I know. I was like, I want to have post-coital bath time. You don't got a fridge, but you got an in-house jacuzzi with a lot of jets. Use your money wherever you want. Yeah. You know what I loved? There are a couple of musical moments in this episode for me that I go oh I like that this is the first one could you hear at all what was playing while they were no not at all it's not even a version of the song I know 
But it's a cover of the song Just Like Heaven by The Cure. It's oh. like an indie folk rock version of it being like, show me, show me, show me how you do that trick. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? That's great. I didn't clock that at all. Yeah, I, love I loved that. I like also this dispelling of the myths moment with Bill in the Mirror. Sure. And it does completely discredit my original theory that I made in the pilot of like, oh, we can't see them in the mirrors and we have all these shots of mirrors. Maybe mm-hmm. they're here. He does dispel that immediately. Yeah. But I do like them taking in the moment to address that and the lore around vampires. I will say, though, if I were to be told you can no longer have garlic, that would be a deal breaker for me. I would have to end the relationship. Garlic girls. Garlic girls. Girls. I'm also a garlic girl. Yes. If yeah. you're not cooking with garlic, what are you doing? Seasoning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love my alley. <laughs> this bathtub scene is aesthetically beautiful and inviting. I want to be in that bathtub. And then drops this truth bomb. Oh, the sexual trauma of it all? Yeah. Yeah. It's so real. It's so honest. And we do get a glimpse into the exposition, the narrative. We find out the reason why Uncle Bartlett was unwelcome at Grand's Wake and all that good stuff. But this was a really pertinent conversation about sexual trauma. And without getting too personal and more so just talking about the craft of this scene itself, I more Mm. so want to know why it resonates so truthfully for you because I feel the same way when I watch this scene too and I'm curious about like what strikes you as far as the representation of how she talks about this past sexual trauma or how it's brought up. Sure. I think as not only a healing person as well as an emerging mental health professional, it's a reminder that the body keeps the score (laughs) and you can be in what you both logically... uh, psychologically and emotionally and physically know to be a safe, joyful space. And you can still be launched back into a deeply traumatic experience without warning, just because there's something even slightly resembling that traumatic experience. For sure. I a hundred percent agree. I Speaking from personal experience as someone who is a survivor, but also as someone who has read a lot of material about survivorship and how this affects their development, I did part of my training as a yoga teacher in people who have dealt with sexual trauma. And it's not only that those feelings and flashbacks can come up at any time, it's that inevitably they will come up during a sexual experience, mm-hmm. even though it is so joyful. And Suki says that. She's like, it was perfect. Yeah. And I can't not think about him. Yeah. And I relate to that so hard. Same. Same. Also, without too much personal disclosure, as similarly a survivor of, of sexual trauma, it's it's wild. And we've even been talking about it as we've been working more in trauma-adjacent therapies. The physiological is so, so impactful on the psychological. And there's this like matrix that we've been looking at a lot throughout the semester where it's like the matrix is a diamond and there the four points are cognitive, emotional, physiological, and behavioral. You can pick the place to start from in your therapy depending on how the symptoms present themselves. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you can be the most rational and healed, quote unquote, individual who can intellectualize 
their pain and their trauma to the ends of the earth, but then you will have the physiological manifestations of that. And therefore you can't do CBT because Mm -hmm. if you're cognitive about it, if you start from there, you can just think your way out of anything and you won't be handling the physical ramifications of it. And so you put yourself in that physical joyful experience and you're not able to control the fact that your body is still responding to a deeply traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I would just, I, I thought about that. I thought about how I'm so grateful that she was still able to have that joyful, wonderful experience of having sex with, with Bill for the first time, having sex at all for the first time and still maintain how beautiful that was for her. But I did, I was like, I see you. Yeah, I saw it too, for sure. And also props to Suki as a character for that not coming up during the experience, because that's been my experience many a time and having spoken to other people who have similar experiences. I think this is very common where in the midst of coitus, you will be a hundred percent there, a hundred percent enthusiastic consent, loving your partner, loving every minute. And then some physical sensation triggers something. And all of a sudden it's like, holy shit, I'm crying. We have to stop now. And that's why you need moment to moment consent. And that's why you need to stay on the same page as your partner Mm -hmm. constantly, because this is so exceedingly common. One out of four, every people, I believe is the current statistic, has experienced some form of sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And those things will be triggered even if mentally, as you just said, they have processed it. It just exists physically and it's such a different way. Mm -hmm. So I'm actually kind of surprised that she was able to get through the whole experience and only have that come up afterward. And that might be the Hollywoodification of it, but... It could very well be because I don't know what her mental health journey has looked like after her molestation. But yeah, that is something that very often comes up during. I'm familiar with the crying within that. I'm also familiar from conversation and experience of the dissociation within it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, where it's like you're either like breaking down because you're like, ah, ah, reliving or you then like try to completely disconnect from your reality. Mm. It's also really rough for me to be in young Sookie's head in Uncle Bartlett's head and to hear his dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it really takes us to a sad, scary place by letting us in on his inner monologue. Yeah. The, the breathing I find really horrifying. Oh, the breathing is horrifying. I like Sookie's response there's something there's something healed in her response when she's disclosing this to Bill and Bill is like it wasn't your fault she goes I know that yes I love that yeah she clearly has done some of the work and good on Gran for you know immediately cutting him out and protecting Mm -hmm. her in that way yeah that's some that's some new school shit that Gran pulled of being like oh, you're coming nowhere near these kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What else is really rough is that interaction between Jason and Lafayette where Jason's like, what if I weaponize my whiteness and call the cops on you? That takes it to a new level. I feel like we are seeing such shades of desperation out of Jason and like it begs the question of like, how good is our guy Jason Mm -hmm. versus 
what has his fiending for V done to him so quickly. And also so quickly. Because yeah, again, like the timeline is hard to keep track of. And I think as I was watching this too, when it aired and was waiting a week between episodes, yeah. you really forget that like he tried V for the first time. If we're talking about the experience with Lafayette being the first time, less than 48 hours ago. And he's already. And he is like absolutely cannot handle it yeah he's weaponizing his whiteness and smacking sookie around smacking sookie around throwing a cop throwing a cop in subsequent scenes he's trying to hawk grand's silver he's jean valjean with those fucking candlesticks yeah literally (laughs) just a bread Yeah, it is crazy how quickly that has all escalated. Yeah. And I think Nelson plays that beautifully. Just the change in his face when you hear the law enforcement being brought up and mm-hmm. when Jason is not responding to the boundary, when Lafayette has said, like, get out of my house, you can't handle this drug. Yeah. Yeah, we see as quickly as it arose and we saw, like, oh, they have this beautiful friendship. Now it is fucking destroyed. Yeah, that's where I wonder is that... I guess, fault of the writing and the pacing of the narrative? Or is that to clue us into how potent V is? I think it's to tell us how potent V is, I would have to guess. Because in the context of the book, Jason and Lafayette have no relationship. Okay. It's not relevant. So I think this is there to serve how strong and powerful this drug is. Okay. Just curious. Mm -hmm. I wondered. Let's switch gears and talk about Tara and Letty May for a sec, because this Mm -hmm. is a big episode for the two of them, and a lot comes up. But we start with that scene with Tara figuring out how to pay the bills and Letty May spiking her coffee. Yeah. Again, written for the stage, where's Rutina's Emmy? Mm -hmm. Where's Rutina's Emmy? It's so heartbreaking, and there's something about pitching the disease outward, externalizing it as a demon versus her letting May being able to take responsibility and, and saying how sick she is and acknowledging how sick she is, especially when she spikes the coffee and it spills and then she begins like desperately trying to suck up all the last little bits because it's like that's a sick person well if we're talking about things that are small but resonate so deeply in their truthfulness like sucking in the bathtub thinking about her sexual assault right after a positive sexual experience the sucking the alcohol out of the clothes is such a deeply truthful and fine detail that resonates for me as someone who comes from an experience with that mm-hmm. that i'm like chris Offit, you knew these experiences so trauma-informed writing writing because I don't think if you haven't been around an alcoholic it would even ever occur to you that they would try to suck the alcohol out of their clothing yeah you'd be like that couldn't happen oh it could happen oh yeah the little details like that really make this whole representation of alcoholism so much more truthful and grounded for me because Adina Porter as Letty May is amazing, but she is like a very over the top theatrical actor. Yeah. And she's an example for me of how film acting doesn't have to be small. I feel oh, like yeah. people get stuck in the, 
idea that film acting has to fit within the box of the screen. And so it has to be very fine and minutely detailed. Mm -hmm. And there are portions of that for sure. And there's, you know, having an awareness of your body and knowing what it's going to look like on a giant screen. Yeah. But you also, that doesn't mean you can't use your body or you can't be big. Like I always think of Jim Carrey, but this is another performance that is so huge and embodied and still works on the screen. Yeah. And it gives you like the full spectrum of your instrument versus keeping it like it's got to be tight and narrow. You're absolutely right. She's like, I think it's all about precision and focus and, and making specificity, sure. specificity to the ends of the earth because her in the bank as well. Yes, exactly you, that. Oh my God. That's huge acting. When she's losing her shit, she hardly looks human anymore. No, she has this wild-eyed look. Mm -hmm. And And it's enormous. And I feel like a lot of actors who are maybe our generation would like be afraid of that type of ugliness. And it looks amazing. Yeah. And the specificity, too, is in watching her even as she is living in the space of being this diseased character, this character who is in in the midst of, I guess, not even a bender, but is under the influence, you still see the specificity of her deciding each tactic she's going to use yes. against that bank teller. Yes, absolutely. And I do love when like Mr. Gus outs himself for a second when she's like, does Mr. Gus not like women? He's like, no, I mean, yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, he, okay. He's like, oh, well, I don't. Uh, and she's straddling it in the middle of a bank. You know what line I love that I never understood until this rewatch. Cause I think I'm just older now or it just went over my head before the rent thing. no, there's snow on the mountain, but a fire in the valley. Yeah. I never got that before. And yeah. I heard it this time and was like, oh my God. Yeah. Also somehow acutely present enough to use poetry. Yes. <laughs> like, as a seduction tactic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like still under the influence, but also what? <laughs> Also in her interview on Truest Blood, Adina Porter said something that I just found so insightful that she doesn't think Letty May's problem or fatal character flaw is alcoholism. What is? She thinks it's poverty and that uh, (laughs) the social worker just lost her shit that the- Oh, honey, person in environment. (laughs) The pressures of being a poor black woman in the South are what has created this character of Letty May and that the alcoholism and the depression are all just symptoms of that. (laughs) (laughs) Simone is dragging her fingers down her cheeks and pulling off her face. Because, Because that's not only so intelligent as an actor, that is intelligent as a person in the world because that is what can open the gate to a disease like addiction. Addiction can and does stem from biological factors and predispositions, but that is a maladaptive behavior. I'm smacking my fist against my hand. (laughs) That is a maladaptive behavior to circumstances beyond your control or seemingly beyond your control. And a black woman impoverished in the South 
Of course, person in environment, person in environment, person in environment, person in environment, all my social workers, let's, (laughs) let's go. (laughs) Sorry, y'all, it's finals, so I'm really in my studies. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. We needed it. If we're staying on the Terra train, but switching gears just slightly, talking about person in environment. I love when you mirror me, baby. It's because I'm actively listening. That's a skill of social working and motivational interviewing. (laughs) If we're going back to Tara, Mm -hmm. something she brings up in that scene with Sam in the trailer where he's like, I'm angry and hammering. (laughs) Again, written for a play. Yes, very much written for a play. Is she looks around and is taking in the trailer and saying, this place would look so great with a little work. Yeah, And there's something about that line that made me realize how little we get to see of Tara imagining or of Tara dreaming. Mm -hmm. We hardly ever see her have hopes for herself or her future in any type of way. And part of that, I think, is a limitation of the character itself within the structure of the show. She's not the A plot line. We mostly see her in relationship to Sookie or in these little B plot lines but I think because I just saw the color purple I just saw the new color purple that's coming out colors I got to go to the Baptist screening don't know why I'm on that email list but I hope I stay on it sorry like B-A-F-T-A yes I went to the BAFTA BAFTA screening why was that not in Britain (laughs) no they do a New York one okay anyway I don't know how I got invited to the BAFTA (laughs) did I not did I miss imagine if I had one just didn't tell you (laughs) Anyway, I somehow miraculously ended up at that screening. So I have seen the film early. It is wonderful. Everyone should go see it. It is very different than the original musical. I was Mm -hmm. not prepped for that and wish I had known before going in. But Mm -hmm. I think the most interesting directorial choice made in that new film is that Seeley has this huge imagination. So typically when we're watching The Color Purple in the old movie or on stage, we're really just watching her get beat on for the first like 90 minutes of the experience Mm -hmm. and in this version you escape into her imagination more and more so wow and so i think because tara similarly is a poor black woman in the south going through these traumatic experiences in this extreme environment yeah just that line triggered like wow i wish we had a cutaway into tara's imagination for a moment and could see what she might see with sam because i do often wonder like what she sees in him yeah there's something to be said that the scale of her imagination is we see it at this point is just in the confines of this trailer. Mm-hmm. That's the only glimpse we get. Like how, how big and vast can it be? Mm-hmm. Or is it at all? We get so few glimpses into that. And speaking of imagination, I'm also really curious who put this idea of having the demon into Letty May's head. That question yeah. isn't really answered. Like how did she come to that conclusion? Did Miss yeah. Jeanette find her and implant that idea of like, I think you need this exorcism. I think you have a demon. Yeah. But it's not like she's really going out and socializing with people. So how would they have met? That's a very good question. It's not really important, but I am curious. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I wonder that too. We go back to Merlot's next. Okay. If Terry is the reason that I apply to the VA for my specialist, (laughs) my specialist practicum. No, that's not the only reason. I ride hard for vets, everybody. Sorry. No, I'm not sorry. They're a highly underserved population. I have said that already, but... 
Terry, Terry's one of the gentlest people in Bon Temps. And Terry is just trying to do right by people. That's what so many veterans believe in their heart of hearts. And that's why they get into it. And then they're like, what have I done? Sweet Jesus, what have I done? Is this the lame episode? <laughs> It feels like an early aughts demonstration of a veteran struggle and almost makes it like funny. And I do laugh, but I do also have that bleeding heart for him when he tries to intervene and he does let out what feels almost like Team America-esque in its writing yeah. of him screaming jihad this motherfucker. <laughs> that is Team America. I did giggle, but then I also was like, he's... He's in it. He's in the fight or flight. I also just think this performance is so grounded that we buy into it. Like it's 100%. funny, but I believe him 10,000%. Yeah. When they're on the fishing boat later and he stops him with the hand signals and points to Sam. Yeah. Like it feels second nature muscle memory. Like he's very traumatized. He's back in like, you know. I'm going to research this actor. <laughs> I'm going to. I'm curious. I want to know. Yeah. Yeah. We ride for our vets here on Call Me Maker. And if Michelle doesn't, I certainly do. <laughs> I support veterans. My dad works for the VA. <laughs> Can you get me a gig? <laughs> I would love to go to Fantasia next. So happy we get to go back. Absolutely. But before he even gets there, we have Randy Sue is back. <laughs> Calling from her lots to talk to Jason. Desperate girl. Desperate girl. And her open legs during this phone conversation. Yeah. Like sitting on a stool, just slumped and like hair twirly, icy makeup. And the way it so, so easily goes from like, can I come to him being like, I'm going to Fantasia. And then she and him are kind of on the same team. She also hates vampires. Yeah, I think he's so far gone that he's, you know, willing to debase himself. Mm -hmm. And I love that she says, like, I will not associate with people of a low moral character. And I'm like, okay. we saw you get boned in trash. In trash. <laughs> you had banana peels on your lower back, yeah. like a tramp stamp. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. But we get to Fantasia. Uh -huh. a, another fantastic Pam line. All the Pam lines are amazing. Are my mom's dead. So am I. <laughs> like fucking incredible. <laughs> She's got some good ones. Oh, she, her lipstick looks amazing too. The lips are so full. They're oh, gorgeous. You want to look at them. <laughs> you want to. <laughs> but when we go inside Fantasia, do you know what we see? No. Eric on a sidekick. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. As we said, only hot girls have sidekicks. And, and Eric's I, a hot girl. I maintain that statement. Yeah, Eric's a hot girl. Yes. Yeah. Well, with that wig, honey. <laughs> no, he's on his sidekick. He looks like a teenager. Just like, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then Girly Pop wants a picture. And they have their like old timey joke of like, said you could take it. I didn't say you could keep it. Yeah, dumbass dad joke. Yeah, that's a dad. That's an old, <laughs> old Nordic dad joke. <laughs> and then Janice Ian is in Fantasia. What's she doing here? What's she doing in that, like, you remember when we wore scarves that served no purpose? Can I tell you, I owned that exact scarf from Urban Outfitters and wore it for years. I know. <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> Shut up! I saw it and I was like, when's Michelle going to come out and say it? <laughs> Do you remember me having it? Yeah. Oh, okay. 
I do, but also it does, it feels canonical to you. It feels in line with the Michelle Martinelli aesthetic over the years. Oh my God. Wait, before we get respectfully, into, before we get into Amy Burley, because she was my aesthetic from ages 15 to 25. I know. <laughs> before we go there, talking about Liz Kaplan for a moment and what an amazing actress she is. I love her take on this character, mm-hmm. but also can I tell you, this is so vulnerable and this is just for the MT girlies who are listening when we first moved to new york everyone you know where i'm going with this i actually don't that's why i've put my head in my hand i'm a little terrified let's go when we first moved to new york and everyone is talking about this infamous vocal coach liz kaplan and how incredible she is and like broadway vocal coach to the stars i was like lizzie kaplan that's incredible. What a widely varied career. I didn't realize she was a voice teacher. Literally picturing Janice Ian. Not the same person. There are two of them. There are two of them. They are not the same. They are not I the have same. since learned that. But I really, every time someone was like, oh, they take from Liz Kaplan, I was picturing... You were picturing... Amy Burley. Yeah, you were picturing Amy Burley, Janice Ian. <laughs> Being like, okay, now put both hands on your stomach. Your mom's chest hair. Your mom's chest hair. <laughs> I that's my admission to you. Thank you for offering that to the space. Mm-hmm. I see you. I hear you. <laughs> I see Amy Burley in you. <laughs> yeah, I really was so obsessed with her upon this first viewing. And there's a very fine line for queer women that I think you're familiar with, which is am I obsessed with her and do I want to be her or do I want to be with her? And it's a very thin line. Correct. But I did want to be Amy Burley. Yeah. That shows for a long time. Yeah. And now when I watch this episode, I'm like, she is fucking insufferable. Yeah. She's like, you drive a real truck. It's all dropped in. She is doing an excellent job as an actor giving this performance. The character is insufferable from Stores, Connecticut. I went I, to Wellesley. I studied philosophy. Yeah, it was going to be pre-law. She's, it's a pick me. It's a pick me girl that I now can't stand when I'm around that girl. And I think yeah. I can't stand her because I was her for such a long period of time. Maybe still am. Maybe not fully not. out of it. I can but, say you Thank you. Very appreciated. But now I cannot stand being around that person Mm -hmm. because if you listen to her dialogue with Jason, like she's not listening to a fucking word he says. No. You know, she's talking about herself and he's like, oh yeah, I went to community college and she does not acknowledge it at all. Continues talking about herself. Yeah, no. It is crazy because I thought there was much more like function to their relationship with one another and that there was something actually like sparking between them. No, it's just a drug fueled connection. They're both getting high together. Exactly. Yeah. And I also similarly remember it being more profound and then I'm like, oh no, they're both so self-involved yeah. that they can't see two feet in front of their own faces and they have ended up together because it serves what they want in right. that moment. The only connection comes when they're literally like, Owl City fireflies coming off their skin. <laughs> 10 million fireflies <laughs> as they're as they're not even having sex. They're just like touching. Touching. And I think that's also a callback to when he approached Tara as the water nymph and was mm-hmm. like, there are sparks flying off your arm. Yeah. We now oh. we now actually see that. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what he was seeing the first time that now we're seeing him get to experience with someone. Yeah. 
Yeah, but Amy Burley is just literally so much. Like when she's like, where's your CD collection? And it this house takes us back to a more legitimate time. And I'm like, what does that mean? Shut the fuck up. What does that mean? Yeah, when, what does that mean? Where did you live in stores? And whenever white people call back to a more legitimate time, that is inherently racially charged, I think. Absolutely. Although I will give some credit to let's say Jason, because it is his CD collection. This is the second musical moment I wanted to touch on. She goes and peruses the CD collection and the song that she chooses, it just happens to be like a very, like a canonical Simone song for me. It's like on my playlist that you have inspired me to create of like, get to know me with these tracks. Yeah, it is colors, a co- real quick. Homework, go make a playlist that you feel would be a great way to introduce yourself to someone. I have mm-hmm. asked my friends to do this and it is the most fun in the world to listen to their playlists. I love the prompt. I love the idea. I love it. I listen to yours, Willa's, our guest from last week. Anyway. Yeah. there She peruses the CD collection and she chooses this gorgeous cover of Velvet Underground Sweet Jane Mm. by the band Cowboy Junkies, who I don't think really had any other hits except this cover. And I've heard it used in media time and time again. I think first time I ever heard it was like on Big Love when I watched that for three seconds. It's a wonderful cover and that's what she chooses. And I heard it, I don't know if I clocked it the first time I watched the show, but the second the music came in, I was like, she's playing Sweet Jane Cowboy Junkies. (laughs) I was like, that bitch, do we have... Similar taste. That's where I was like, am I Amy? No, I'm not Amy no, Burley. No, no, no. And she just pulls the mortar and pestle out of her bag. Yeah. Mary Poppins ass over here with that bag. What do you mean? Mortar and pestle is like heavy. And she's also giving Jason this whole condescending speech about like, do you even know how this works? Do you even know what this means? And like, she starts talking about Gaia and the blood being oxygenated. And I'm like, honey, you went to school for philosophy. You don't even know what this means. You went to school for philosophy. And also it like delegitimizes that whole like holisticism or pseudo holisticism like steez that she's on that it's like he's also having just as profound of an experience and I guess he can like listen and buy into some some way to what you're saying Amy but also like none of that fucking matters just get high yeah there are two other things she says that really grind my gears in this whole section. When she does the whole Holy Communion monologue, where she's like, you know, this is the real thing and it's not just some empty ritual. And I'm like, actually, rituals are not empty. They give our entire life meaning and purpose. What is life without marriages and funerals and the rituals that surround those things and how we mark important moments in our lives? Like, I am a person who deeply believes in the power of ritual and her dismissing it like that and being like, yeah, drugs. I'm like, what a fucking idiot. And the other thing she says that really kills me is the whole nothing is real. Everything is permitted. That is a Nietzsche quote. That ain't her. He doesn't know that though. And she knows that he doesn't know that. She knows he doesn't know that. And she's trying to pass it off as her own knowledge. And I think True Blood does lean very Nietzsche. We see the coffin again, this episode of Gott is tot. Gott is tot. But again, (laughs) this is just another moment. Oh, God. You know what came up in my head? Sometimes my like trains of thought and my responses to things are just like little like compulsive things that I would shout out just to make you and myself laugh. Mm hmm. My thing when I saw Amy was, I was like, you know, that bitch is an anti-vaxxer. 
<laughs> oh, yes. Yes. The Venn diagram of like anti-vaxxer and people who sell essential oils yeah. is a circle. And you know Amy Burley's in it. Yeah. yeah. You know she's in it. You know she's like, um, actually, 5G. Like... <laughs> Like a fucking asshole. She's a Silver Lake mom. <laughs> that, oh. And you know I'm still a new age girly. I'm still a yoga girly. There's a lot I buy into with all of that. But I think she's so pretentious and shitty about it. Yeah. But you thought you were her. I really did. You're not. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Well, I would have taken it as a compliment then. You live... <laughs> You learn. <laughs> but now we have to get into the exorcism because we have not touched on that actually at all yet. Miss no. Jeanette and the ritual of the exorcism itself. You love. I do love. You love exorcisms. Okay. And I am going to lean into my mystical side here because there's a huge element in this entire scene that's asking this question of like, what do we believe in? What is possible? Mm-hmm. And I am someone who is is very rooted in science. Like I believe in evolution. I believe in modern medicine. I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but there are mystical things that I really find myself wholeheartedly believing in for no scientific reason. Like I am someone who believes in astrology and tarot readings and all this kind of new age stuff that is not scientifically proven in any way. And it's funny to deal with that cognitive dissonance sometimes, especially in like this representation of it, of like, do we believe in this exorcism or not like is it actually happening or is this all bullshit because we see Tara thinking it's all bullshit and then having this like very disturbing experience I think it's just an interesting thing to ponder yeah because we know Tara for instance is similarly very rooted in science she's incredibly bright and intelligent you see something happening you see something really big happening before you and and she does and you she it questions she's like wait a second something is happening something is happening to my mom mm-hmm. that challenges the idea that nothing is going to happen when something does then you're like well what do i make of all that yeah I don't know what it is. I do believe in shamanism and I do believe in indigenous medicinal knowledge and it being beyond the scope of our modern Western understanding. I under, I believe that too. Do I, I believe people necessarily have demons inside them? No, but no. I do think ritual is powerful and this entire process and going through this whole evening is a powerful emotional and cathartic experience for everyone involved to a certain extent. I agree. And I feel, I think that there was some benefit to whatever the hell Miss Jeanette did to the quote unquote exorcism that she performed on Lenny May. I believe that there was something beneficial to that. I've been thinking about that a lot, especially with astrology, because you mentioned you're an astrology girly. For the well, folks I'm only home. an astrology girly because of you. Thank you. <laughs> Callers, Simone was doing the astrology game. She was reading our birth charts back in 2011, like long I, before it was a major part of the zeitgeist. Thank you very much. I also have to give my flowers, our flowers to our sister, Nikki Brownson. Of course. He was, right by my side doing similarly and I thank you for that I've always been an astrology girly and now as I'm becoming a budding mental health professional girly I now have more language to jive up that belief system and how I believe personalities exist and are formed and are influenced and to me it feels like 
a more metaphysical spiritual way of characterizing personality types and predispositions to things in the world. I feel like that's always how I felt and viewed it. And now I have like more language to frame that. And I feel like similarly, this experience of an exorcism on Letty May is kind of like giving a reframing device to a very acute therapeutic experience for her addiction. Yes. And the defense specifically that I've come up with for astrology, because I run into this argument, a lot of people who thinking it's just like utter bullshit and that there's no legitimacy to it. Yeah. To them, I say, okay, at worst, it is all bullshit. It's still a tool for self-awareness because you could read a horoscope or get an astrology reading done and be able to have a moment of self-reflection and say, oh, actually, I don't think that's true about me. And that active exercise is still inviting healthy reflection and contemplation. And at best, you could view it as we are part of the cosmos. We are part of the universe, not to get too Amy Burley on us. And sorry, you're Carl Sagan, okay? <laughs> I'm fucking Carl Sagan. Okay. His daughter just wrote a book I really want to read. Anyway, <laughs> and I do think the position the cosmos was in when we entered it is going to have some effect on who we are as human beings i've taught you so well you've taught me so well like I, you can't make this shit up my menstrual cycle is time to the moon cycle every time there's a full moon i'm on my period callers you now get to know that but i just think like the planet and the universe affect us so much more than we give it credit for and again i have no scientific evidence for that other than my own observation in these traditions but i do think there's legitimacy to it i've got evidence you ready yeah it's one of my favorite quotes mr sagan we are all stardust. That's what we're all made of. Are we going to get that tattooed? <laughs> I'm always looking for a new tattoo. <laughs> you know me. I'm not a words girly. <laughs> if, it, if it's going to be a thing, it's going to be a symbol. And I already have... I already have the constellation Libra <laughs> on my shoulder. <laughs> anyway, obviously the folk magic that Miss Jeanette is performing is not astrology. These are all very different traditions that we're kind of right. shoving all together right now for the sake right. of this argument, but do come from very different places and very different peoples. Mm -hmm. I do think the crone stone edition is really interesting. Apparently that's something Chris Offit was really into and like collected them. And so he wrote them into the episode, huh. but that's like a whole separate lineage and tradition in magical practice and history. Cool. And is I, it crone like crony? Like, I don't know. Okay. I'm yeah. curious. I want to look into that more. Then. Yeah. I think it's like people who study those types of like much like crystal magic, like rocks and earth formations about and to say crystal math, <laughs> crystal math rocks and their formations and the properties they might elicit. There's apparently a lineage of crone stones. I don't really know specifics about it. We could look into that. Oh, I'm a rock girl. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a bug and rock girly. So you know me, I want to look. Into yeah. That. You do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gun. <laughs> You know what was maybe the thing that I disliked the most about the scene? I'm I know sure. what you're going to say and I have good news for you. I'm sure. I'm sure. It's not a real possum. <laughs> it's not a real possum. They did not actually drown a possum. That is an animatronic possum. Of course. I know. Like no animals were harmed in the making of True Blood. Like I'm sure that no disclaimer animals were was. Harmed. Yeah. I still didn't want to watch a possum get drowned. Yeah, it is fucked up. Okay, is. so another thing that comes up in this whole sequence that I actually don't believe in at all. Maybe this isn't what they were going for, but the idea of 
I don't know how to pronounce it, glossolalia, when you speak in tongues. And it's very popular in like Pentecostal Christian circles when she is beating the drums and then she starts speaking in the other language. I don't believe in that shit. Like, I don't think you are genuinely being influenced by a spiritual entity that is then speaking through you. I think it's just like sounds and noises that like meditation or like drugs take your consciousness to another state. I agree with that. But I don't think it's like an actual religious experience or something that the Lord is communicating through you. Because that's what they say in Pentecostal traditions. It's like the priest normally translates whoever is having the experience. Right. And that I cannot buy into. Yeah. I agree with you that it is more like a meditative chanting. And I feel like that's self-initiated as opposed to being influenced by some external factor or maybe the external factor that's influencing is just like the depth and connectivity between the practitioner and whatever, you know, church or place of worship or whatever experience they're having. But I think that's ignited by the person doing it, not like, oh, and then the spirit swooped in and then it told me to go ringing, It is something I'm really fascinated by and I haven't done a ton of research on, but I have looked into in a preliminary way and there have been neurological studies done about it because people are really curious to know like what exactly is happening here in neurological studies of people who experience this phenomenon, the language centers of their brain are not lighting up. So it is something else that's happening in the brain, but I think it's a much more like physiological somatic experience where the faith is traveling through their body in a certain way. And maybe that's just because I went to art school and did too many voice and speech classes and have done a little too much link later work. Tap the well at the button. But I think they're, I think they're tapping into something that is cathartic, but does not have meaning in any way. Cause some people will make the argument that it, it is communicating something. I don't think so. I think it's a, a cathartic. I think you're right. It's a cathartic release. Mm-hmm. But yeah. there, are, there are arguments otherwise. And I, I find it so well, funny. Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I find it so funny that I can suspend my disbelief for like the concept of an exorcism, but not for that. <laughs> That's where I draw the line. Maybe it's my religious prejudice. There's an amazing play about this phenomenon, actually. It's called The Harvest. If you ever want to read. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't read my friends and not because I'm not a cunt. It's because I don't know how, you know what? The other day I almost made the joke about not being able to read. And I was like, I it was about the body keep score. It's one of the bo- only books I've ever read. And that's a thick, heavy book. So. Yeah. It was worth the time. Yeah. And sweet, sweet Dakota said, and that was by choice. <laughs> that's really funny. He was like, that was by choice <laughs> because you can't. <laughs> Oh, that got me. That got me good. <laughs> and that's on support. <laughs> and that's on love and support. That's on love and support. I don't know. Should we? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Should we get into hottest moment of the app? Are we here already? <laughs> Is that you speaking to? The critical moment in the app, which is our defense of our hottest moment of the episode. 
like last week, I think the one minute timing felt really good. And so I'm going to say, let's time ourselves for a minute. Let's get on our high horse. I love it. Because otherwise we'll just keep going. Yeah. 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 You give us the space. We'll run. (laughs) Michelle, would you like to go first? I'm so ready. Okay. This is Michelle's defense for the hottest moment of season one, episode seven, Burning House of Love. Michelle, your time starts now. Okay. It is in the cold open. It is Bill and Sookie on the ground making love, but it's not just the entirety of that. We're not just blankets here, even though those blankets look cozy. It's not just a blanket statement. It's really specifically when he makes eye contact with her and then thrusts up because this is graphic callers. But I think we as a culture really underestimate the power of the thrust up. It is not just about in and out. It is also about the upward motion and the stimulation of the clitoris that happens when you do that. Really underrated, not given its flowers often enough. So I am saying here and now that is the hottest moment that not only does Bill know that, that it is not just about the friction. It is also about the direction and the depth. And that Suki gets to experience that on her very first time. Good for you, girl. Yeah. Say that. People got to go to school on the physiology and understanding what's going on in there. Yeah. 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 Simone, are you ready? Sorry, I'm daydreaming. (laughs) Okay, Simone, this this is your hottest moment of the episode for season one, episode seven, Burning House of Love. Your time starts now. The afterglow that Sookie Stackhouse is painted in, I want to be, I know I've had good sex in my life and I will continue to, but like, I'll have what she's having. (laughs) Because even after, even when she's just sauntering around Bill's place and she sees the little hole he sleeps in, she's tall, tan, fit and ready. She has this gorgeous tan. Mm-hmm. I think her hair has been done. Mm-hmm. Like she comes home in Bill's button down and like she's literally glowing. And then even in her dumb little ascot, like she she then puts on eyeliner. I don't fucking know. But like she, I want whatever she's having. She looks so hot and she plays the transformation. Ten seconds. She plays the transformation of having been sexually intimate so well. I want what she's having. I'll have what she's having. I will have what she is having. I'll have what she's having. I'll have what she's having. (laughs) I also love her being like, I don't like getting into personal business, Arlene. The leakiest faucet (laughs) you've ever seen won't (laughs) shut up. I do remember that excitement, though, of like when you have sex, even with someone new for the first time that you're really excited about and feeling like you need to tell absolutely everybody. I'm sure there were some Lafayettes in my life of people who had glazed over faces as I was talking about the same person for the 1400th time. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I think it's that time to wrap it up, Simone. What song speaks to us from this episode? Well, I mean, I talked about Just Like Heaven by The Cure. I talked about Sweet Jane by Cowboy Junkies. No, either of those songs. Okay. I'm (laughs) going to make you listen to both. I have a suggestion. Okay. Since this was our unofficial Les Mis episode. <laughs> uh-huh. And you're on your soapbox for our vet, Terry. Is it empty chairs and empty tables? Too dark? I don't know. Let's do it. Let's fucking do this it. This is for the veterans. <laughs> 
There's a grief that can't be spoken. There's a pain goes on and on. Empty chairs and empty tables. Now my friends are dead and gone. Thank you so much for tuning in today, callers. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. This podcast is co-hosted by Simone Less and Michelle Martinelli and edited by Michelle Martinelli with special help from our consulting producer, Tail Rap Olson. Callers, we are going to be taking a brief holiday hiatus, just delaying by one little week. So we will be resuming our episodes on January 11th, 2024. See you in the new year.